0: This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The scripture today is from the 19th chapter of Exodus, verses 1 through 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, Ye shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that ye shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and consecrate them and let them wash their garments And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man." He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: As we continue this morning with our study of the book of Exodus, we uh, come, as you just heard, to the foot of Mount Sinai, which I have to believe is kind of a special moment in the life of Moses. And the reason that I say that is the last time that Moses stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, he was standing there talking to God in the burning bush. And if you know the story, if you've been with us, you know that's where the Lord commissioned Moses, and he said, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to become my instrument through whom I deliver my people Israel from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt for 430 years, and this is the sign that I'm giving to you, Moses, that I am the one who has done all of this. It's not going to be the plagues I send, as remarkable as they are. It's not going to be parting the Red Seas, as dramatic as that had to be. It's not going to be the fact that I turn the bitter waters sweet, that I feed you with bread from heaven every single day or that I bring forth water from a rock. Those are amazing. But the sign that he gave Moses, is: he says, you will know that I have done it when you come back right here. When you arrive with the people, that's the sign. And so we come to Exodus 19, we stand with Moses and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, and we do that knowing that next week as we move into Exodus 20, God is going to give to us the first of His Ten Commandments, and then, at least in terms of the way that we've laid it out, the next week He'll give us the second, and then the next week He'll give us the third, and the fourth week He'll give us the fourth, and all the way through the tenth. In other words, we're going to spend the next ten weeks, beginning next week, slowly walking through each one of the Ten Commandments which may or may not excite you. And I thought I'd just kind of put that on the table and discuss it for a minute, because it might not excite you, you know? You might hear that coming out of me with the enthusiasm that only a pastor can have about such a study. And you might be thinking to yourself, all right, so Tom, here's the deal. Uh, You're going to spend the next 10 weeks walking through the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to go home and figure out which week is the 11th I'll be back then because I'm going to be walking in the yard. Okay. That's, that's my deal. That's the way that I'm going to go. And here's why, because the law is intimidating. The law is invasive. It gets all up in your face. It gets all up in your life. Doesn't it? And you're fearful that if you come to church 10 weeks in a row and we talk about all 10 of the commandments, good grief, man. You just want to say, look, I don't come here to feel guilty and full of shame. And I'm just fearful that if I show up the next 10 weeks, you're just going to give me 10 more ways that I'm failing. And I already am failing enough. Like I know enough of my failures to know I don't want to know anymore at this point. And that is exactly the opposite of what we're going to do. Now, you need to know that the law is going to expose deficiencies in us. It does that. It will do that for me and it will do that for you. But guys, we live on this side of the cross. And as we'll talk about in a few minutes... What God has given us His law to do is not to riddle us with guilt. It is not to saddle us with shame. It is not to point out all of the ways that we're failing or at least 10 significant ways that we're failing. That is not the point at all. He comes to us with Jesus and says, Let me relieve you of that. And you know what takes us to Jesus? It's the law, it's the recognition of our deficiencies. Christ frees us of our guilt. Christ frees us of our shame. And then he comes to us and he makes this amazing promise, which is I'm going to collect up all of your failures, every single one of them, and somehow in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine now. I'm going to bring good out of all of this. So what I want to do today is I want to give you three reasons to tune in. I'm going to say God's law is a great gift to us give you three reasons not to miss the next 10 weeks, but even to be here when you're not here. So when you're not here, it is easy to be here in the sense that you have the phone app, in the sense that we have the website, in the sense that you can tune in at 11 o'clock, so hi, on Facebook Live. Uh, You can do these kinds of things and stay with us because I think it's going to be a wonderfully enriching season of time. So the first reason that the law of God is a great gift to us is because it reveals to us the nature and the character of God. And what I mean by that is the law comes to us and says, let me show you God's otherness. Let me show you God's holiness. Let me show you all of the perfections of his nature and character by which God again and again and again and again proves himself to be so dramatically different from every person walking around on planet Earth, from all of us, stunningly different. And we see that not only in the law, but we just heard a little bit of that in the story that we just looked at. We hear it there too, the context for the giving of the law. What is that? Well, it's earthquake, it's darkness, it's smoke, it's fire, it's lightning and thunder. I made a list. It's the booming of trumpets. It's the booming of God's voice. It's God coming to his people and saying, I want you to take the next three days and I want you to get yourself as clean as you can possibly get. Like, I mean, physically, morally, spiritually, just scrub yourselves down, guys. I want you to get ready, but I want you to understand this. No matter how clean you can get yourself in the next three days, you're not gonna be able to make yourself clean enough to even approach my mountain. Like, you can't even touch the mountain that I descend upon much less safely, confidently, enthusiastically walk up into my presence. And that's the kind of stuff that freaks us out about the law, isn't it? I mean, that's like exhibit A, you know, you're like, holy man, we're going to get 10 weeks of that. That's devastating. And yet, I think we'd have to admit that we do actually want God to be holy. Holy. In other words, we don't want God to be like us. Can we say that? Let's just think it through for a minute because I think that we do not want a God who is selfish or tired or confused or irritable. We definitely do not want a God who at least every once in a while wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. We don't want a God who cannot talk to anyone or endure the company of anyone until they have their coffee. You don't want that. We do not want a God who is capable of being irrational, untruthful, impatient, or excessively angry. We do not want a God who is regularly confounded by the riddles of this life and just simply doesn't know what to do at times, or who faces obstacles that he is utterly powerless to deal with. And we definitely don't want a God incapable of changing a human heart, because all of our hearts need to be changed. And whether we're psychologically able to admit this in this moment or not, we all deep down understand and know that. And so we want God to be holy, but we don't just want God to be holy as we've talked about of late quite a bit. We want God to be just. We even want God to bring judgment. And in bringing judgment, right all of the wrongs that we've experienced and that everyone else has experienced and end the madness that swirls around us. And again, if we're honest and capable of admitting it inside of us as well. So we want a God who is holy. We want a God who is just. We want a God who brings judgment. We just don't want that God to bring judgment against us. And here's what we do want. We want to be able to touch the mountain. Way more than that. We want to be able to go up the mountain. We want safely, confidently, boldly, expectantly, enthusiastically to be able to enter into the presence of God, which brings me to my second point, which is that the law of God is a great gift to us because it leads us to the forgiveness of God. When you flip in the Bible to the New Testament, to the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, you find the apostle Paul explaining the whole of that to us. So, for example, in Galatians 3.24, he comes to us and he says, listen, guys, let me give to you one of the primary purposes of the law. One of the primary purposes of the law is to come along and expose your deficiencies, but not for the sake of riddling you with guilt and saddling you with shame and pointing out 10 more ways that you're failing. It exposes your deficiencies to lead you to the one who is all-sufficient, the one who has been sufficient for you. So he says this, He says, so then, the law was our guardian, that's the key word, until Christ came. In order that we might be justified, well, what does that mean? It means in order that we might be accepted by God, received up into his presence. You don't even have to touch the mountain, you can climb the mountain, go up into his presence. And not by the keeping of the law, but how he's very clear by faith, the idea being in Jesus, who entered into this world as our substitute, who lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law for us that none of us have lived and laid down that same perfect life in place of us for all of the ways that we have failed. He overcomes our failings. He's our champion. And so the word guardian here that Paul uses as in the law was our guardian is the key because the role of a guardian in Paul's day was that of a tutor. He was an instructor. He was a trainer. He was someone who came and took a child under his wing and pointed out their deficiencies and disciplined them even. To what end? To make them feel like guilty failures? No. To lead them to something better. Paul saying that's what the law does for us. It comes along and it points out our deficiencies, but not to riddle us with guilt and saddle us with shame we're not to be made to feel like guilty failures but to expose our need for the one who has succeeded for us who frees us from all of that stuff who redeems even our failures which leads me to my third point which is that the law of god is a great gift to us because the law shows us how to live for god after it drives us to faith in jesus and that's a point that's made in the preamble of the law and we'll look at that next week but but it's a point that's made here as well. I mean, if you just think about this story of the Exodus that we've been in, here's what God did not do. He didn't create his law and then go to his people who were enslaved in Egypt and say to his people, okay, so here's the deal, guys. I'm going to give you my law. And if you obey it, wait for it, perfectly, because that's my standard, just tuck that away somewhere, then you can become my people. And when you become my people, then I will deliver you from bondage and slavery and all of that. I'll lead you through the desert and feed you with the manna and bring forth the water from the rock and all that deal that I'm going to do, and I'll bring you into the promised land, and and then you will be my people. It's not the way that he works with them. He he delivers them because they are his people. And then he gives them his law and says, Here's how to live for me. It's effectively what he's done for us in Jesus. You know, he he delivers us, he comes and pulls us out of the muck, if you will. (laughs) He sacrifices his life to deliver us from guilt and shame and from all of our failures. And then he comes to us with his law, and he says, all right, so here's the deal. Here's the use of the law now. The use of the law in your life is to teach you how to live for me as an expression of your love for me. And that is exactly the kind of direction that everybody who is in love is looking for. Now, why do I say that? Because when you fall in love, guys, what do you begin to do? You make a study of this person that you're in love with and not because you're, you know, like a stalker or something, not weird stuff, but but you make a study of this person that you're in love with because you want to know how to please them. You're looking for opportunities, man. And there's like basically nothing that you won't do. Isn't that true? I remember when I was dating Beth, I was a, a law student and I had no job. and uh, I had no money, uh, but I did have credit cards. So I had that going for me. That's, that's wise financial planning. And uh, I was up in North Carolina. My parents have a vacation home up there. And Beth was working for Pete Marwick. She was an accountant and she was traveling. And anyway, she was going to be in Orlando. And she was gonna hang out in Orlando with her best friend, and I could tell that she really wanted me to come meet her best friend or maybe have her best friend meet me. I don't know. She was looking for you know to check the best friend box on me. And I wanted to help make that happen. And so here's what I did. I drove nine hours from North Carolina to Orlando. Mind you, I had nowhere to stay. She's staying with her friend, so I, you know, got a hotel room. And you say, Well, how did you pay for that? Just by going further into debt. That's that's the way I did it not a big deal. I think you know the system. And so then I went out on a date with her and her friend, checked the best friend box, had a great time, got up the next day, she let, left for Jacksonville, and I drove nine hours back to North Carolina. And you say, why would you do that? This is crazy. Okay, here's the answer, and I want you to feel it, okay? I did it because I wanted to. You say, who wants to do that? (laughs) Like, who wants to drive nine hours to spend three hours with somebody and spend $300 he doesn't have, and then to have to drive nine hours all the way back from where he came from? Who wants to do that? Somebody who's in love. It's that simple. Jesus comes to us and says, Listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, why will I keep your commandments? Because you'll want to. You'll want to. Things that looked crazy to you, you'll gladly do for the sake of love. Listen, that is the way that love works. There's no question about it. It changes your organizing principle in life from how can I take what you have to enhance me to how can I take what I have to enhance you. You look for ways to please the one you love. And what God is doing is he's going, all right, well, listen, I'm going to take all the guesswork out of you. Like every man should love this. I'm going to take all the guesswork out of this for you. Here's how to do it. Oh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. And he said, all right, but why does God want us to live like that? I mean, what's the point of keeping his, like, why would he ask us to express your love for me this way? Why? What's, what's the Well, he answered that in Exodus 19, verse 6 he's coming and he's saying, listen, if you love me, okay, then you'll live like this. And if you'll live like this, then here's what you shall be to me. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Like, what does a priest do? A priest is a mediator between God and humanity. If in love you live like this, then you shall be to me a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation that is set apart for me and my purposes, even though it is a nation amongst the nations. It's scattered amongst all of the people of the nations. It's amazing. He's saying, listen, if in love for me you'll keep my law, then you will immediately be a very different kind of people from all of the other peoples in this world amongst whom you now live. Why will you be different? Because by my spirit and together with my people, as you fall more and more in love with me and grow in your relationship with me, you will keep more and more of this law. And and as you do, you will express more and more of my nature and my character as opposed to your own. And I, God, am other. I am holy. I am different. And as you live out the difference that is me, God, well, then you will become a priest to the people in your world. And I say that because you'll be reflecting the nature and character and frankly even the reality of the presently invisible God, of the God that the people in your world right now cannot see, smell, hear, taste, or touch. And you'll be doing that in their lives in ways that they can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. And as a result, you will lead them to me. Your life is proclamational. How do you proclaim by being holy, by being different, and by speaking up too. Peter says basically the same thing in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, same kind of language, a people for God's own possession, but why? To what end? What is the purpose? So that you may proclaim, there it is, the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Guys, God hasn't given us his law to guilt us and to shame us and to give us, you know, 10 more ways that we're failing. Thank you so much. It's not it. He's given us his law to expose our deficiencies that are there anyway, that we might be driven to Jesus to be forgiven of them all, to be healed, to rest assured that even the biggest messes we make will in the end, he will take and make good And when we in love obey his law, we proclaim that same kind of freedom to the people in our world. And just like we needed that freedom, they need that freedom. So when I get up and, you know, with the enthusiasm that only a pastor can have about maybe a study of the Ten Commandments and say, hey, we're going to spend 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments. You know, like if internally you're shutting down going, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I just want to say, no, no, hang on a second. This could be one of the greatest little seasons of study we have. They are God's gift to you. Don't miss it. And I want to tell you how not to miss it. So, if you have a worship journal, for example, and if you don't have one, you can grab one on the way out. You look on the back of this. Here's how not to miss it starting tomorrow personal worship. It indicates there the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at next week. So Exodus 20 verses 1 through 3. I'm adding to this, and it's my fault that it's not actually written on here because I missed the production deadline. So a failure, okay, on my part. But I'm going to add to that Psalm 115. So Exodus 20, 1 through 3, and then also Psalm 115. And you can see here how to work through it. If you do not have our phone app, you really ought to get our phone app It's all there. It's the best way to be involved in the rhythm of life here at this church without question. If you get it tomorrow morning, you will get a push, a personal worship push. So you need to turn on that notification and it will give you everything that's on the back of here and more week by week by week. Wednesdays, you will receive another push and it's called pastoral reflections. What is that? It's the thoughts and ideas that the Lord has been bringing to the hearts and minds of people on our staff as they have worked through the same passage of Scripture up to that point in the week. And it's really enriching and really helpful. It kind of helps you as you think about these things and, and consider what the Lord might be saying to you. On Fridays, you'll get a devotional meditation. What's the purpose of that? To help prepare your heart for worship on Sunday. Do not tune out, but do tune in. And the last thing that I want to say is that if you're here today and you know maybe you're new or maybe you've been here for a while and you're sitting here going, hey man, I'm I'm the guilty, you know, feeling ashamed, definitely convinced that I'm a failure guy, um, and I, I don't want to wait ten weeks. So what do I do? And you want to come to faith in Jesus and experience that freedom and begin that walk, knowing that He is your Savior, then when this service is over. Come forward. We have people who hang out here at the front. I promise they don't bite. You know, they're they're not weird. I mean, they are weird, but they're no weirder than you. So just just know that. All right, we're we're all pretty normal folks, really. And they would love to pray with you, to answer your questions, uh, to work through that with you in any way that we can. Okay, because our hope and our purpose is to proclaim the light of Christ that we have found. And, uh, and it brings us great joy to be able to do that. So anyway, come forward afterwards, all right? So I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and that your words from beginning to end are in fact words of life. Lord, even the words that, that expose our deficiencies, you speak to expose that you might reveal your sufficiency for us. Lord, we thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, for who he is, God made man, for the work that he's done that we could not do, a work of deliverance from guilt and shame, a work of redemption for all the messes we've made, a work in where he succeeded where we have failed, and, and the work of the one who has succeeded for us. And I pray that you would give us faith, Lord, to simply bring our broken lives to him, and by faith to claim that work on our behalf, that we might be repaired and made useful. So do these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.